Hey there, you're listening to A Soft Mess. We're an experimental podcast that delves into the intersections of mental health, identity, radical vulnerability, self-love, and self-care. Just so you know, this series is not intended to be used as a medical resource, as we are not healthcare providers or mental health practitioners. While we may share self-care techniques, coping mechanisms, and other life skills, our main goal is to share experiences and stories for and from marginalized communities and groups. If you're struggling with mental illness, trauma, abuse, or any of the areas that this series may cover, we urge you to consider reaching out to a mental health provider or support group in your area. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or would like to share a story with our listeners, please email us at thebearcaveco at gmail.com. That is spelled T-H-E-B-A-R-E-C-A-V-E-C-O at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. We always want to grow and learn in our own perspective, and we love to share other people's voices on the podcast as well. We also use that same email to accept donations via PayPal. So if you are so inclined to make a monetary contribution to our project, you can use that email and send it to us via a PayPal account. If you like what we do but can't afford to make any monetary contributions, that's completely understandable. And we're just happy that you're listening and possibly sharing with other people that you think would benefit from our ideas and our words. So thanks again, and on to our next episode. softies it's barely your favorite queer mo on the internet and a host of a soft mess thanks for tuning in to this week's episode where we'll be continuing our discussion about suicide awareness and mental health today we'll be talking about some common misconceptions about suicide as well as sharing some words from a special guest marissa light a fellow creative who struggles with depression Marissa lives on the East Coast with her cat, Stormy, 
writes poetry, and recently she's joined a group for a little bit of support with her depression. I know Marissa Light from school where we took writing classes and advocated for LGBTQ plus rights. It's been several years since we've spoken, and just this past month we've reconnected not only for a chat, but also to write a song together. Yep, the clip you just heard is actually from that song, and we've called it I'm So Glad You're Alive. If you want to download it and read the lyrics, you can find it on Bandcamp, and the link's going to be in the podcast description. Before we get into the myths and the interview, we just wanted to define some terms that are often misunderstood or conflated. Words of the week. Words of the week. Words of the week. Yeah, words. If you've heard these words before and know what they mean, that's awesome. We really just want to get everyone on the same page, and we don't want to assume that the words that we're using are 100% understood by our listeners. I, I come from a Polish-speaking family. English was my second language. I really do understand what language barriers mean, not only between different languages when you try to translate ideas, but also within our own languages that we know and understand. We have different experiences, different vocabularies, and oftentimes the experiences and vocabularies collide and clash. If we're not talking the same language, using the same terms and definitions, we'll oftentimes not understand each other and possibly disagree when we really agree or have a lot more in common than we think. So here we go. The two words of the week are going to be suicide ideation and suicide attempt. So suicide ideation is also known as suicidal thoughts. It's thinking about or having a quote-unquote unusual preoccupation with suicide. This ranges, you know, from fleeting thoughts to extensive thoughts to detailed planning, even role-playing, which an example of that would be standing on a chair with a noose. And it also can include incomplete attempts, which may be deliberately constructed to not be completed. A suicide attempt, on the other hand, is an attempt, an action, where a person tries to commit suicide but survives. It may also be referred to as a failed suicide attempt or even non-fatal suicide attempt. But the latter terms are still subject to a lot of debate among researchers and psychologists. Suicide attempts also include parasuicide, such as self-harm, where there is no actual intention of killing oneself. As you can see, there's a bit of overlap in these definitions, and the terminology is still heavily debated among psychologists, and I believe even people in general, those who take the time to talk about it. If you ask me, the nuance lies behind words in these definitions such as deliberate, intended, intention. Can we truly define these terms? Who determines intent? Is it the suicidal person or an outsider? A friend? 
a police officer, a therapist. While I do believe we truly do want to help one another, we often fall short due to our own biases, which act as tinted lenses on others' experiences and realities. While you may care deeply for your suicidal friend or relative, please be careful if you find yourself falling into any of the following narratives, myths about suicide. And remember, it is important to have many avenues of support and care. You cannot be the sole support system for any one person, especially if they're struggling with mental illness. Help them gather resources, caregivers, and join them on their quest to heal if you so choose. But make sure to allow them to be immersed in the process and show them through leading by example that things like therapy, group classes, and self-care are just normal parts of being awesome and healthy adults. Yeah, so now that we have defined some of these terms, here are our least favorite myths about suicide. Number one, it's a cry for help, or they're just trying to get attention. I really don't like the language of that. A large percentage of suicide attempts and successful suicides are due to mental illness such as bipolar disorder, drug dependence, alcoholism, and often it's just a combination of a lot of different things. Saying that it's a cry for help or that the person is just trying to get attention paints the picture that these people who are sick are actually manipulative. It's really not your place to say whether or not someone is being manipulative. If you feel manipulated, it's definitely okay to set a boundary and step away from the situation. However, calling someone manipulative just because they're sharing their thoughts and feelings with you is really just a side effect of patriarchy. We're told to stifle our emotions, not talk about the serious things that that are toxic and harmful and really affect our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Instead, we stay silent and then we rag on the people that are open and honest and want to start a dialogue. I definitely think that's more harmful than helpful. And instead of saying that someone is manipulative or trying to get attention, why not just step away? Or if it is a cry for help, and you're able and willing to, why not just help? Number two, it's selfish. I do understand that the aftermath of a suicide attempt or a successful suicide is really horrible. And those affected have a lot to deal with. It's really, it's, it's understandable that they feel traumatized, that they feel badly, that they're in grief. However, it's not selfish. Suicidal people almost always think that the world is just better off without them. Hopelessness, helplessness, worthlessness, it all sets a stage for suicide. It's the dialogue in our heads that tells us that it's not okay to feel this bad and that we just should end it instead of asking for help. So no, I don't think it's selfish, and I think that we really need to stop 
using those terms when we're talking about someone who is sick and needs help. We wouldn't call someone selfish for having a reaction to their medication or if their body uh, develops a disease. We'd tell them to go get help to see a, pre a, a doctor. Number three, and this is, this is a myth that I've heard a couple of times, and I, I'm not really sure where it, where it starts, but it's the idea that we shouldn't ask someone if they're suicidal because it's going to push them to act on it. And I could see where there's a lot of discomfort when it comes to talking about suicide and asking people if they're all right. But the idea of reaching out and asking people if they're all right and having it backfire really seems illogical and it's, it feels like it mostly stems from that discomfort and not knowing how to start the conversation. I actually think that if you ask someone and you actually come across as though you're concerned and you care, I feel like it'll probably be the first time they've been asked and most likely it'll come off as concern and it might release some of those thoughts that they're a worthless burden. So it might be better to try directness. I have a personal example I'd like to share with everyone. It's a little bit, a little bit morbid, but when I was about 12 years old, my mom found a bloody razor in my pajama pants. And I can't tell you if I left it there by accident or if I just wanted her to find it. I don't remember and I was really young. But she found it and she asked me if I wanted to die. And I think she might have even asked me why. And after that conversation, that awkward, awkward conversation, I mostly stopped hurting myself. I don't know if it was a combination of guilt, shame, and not wanting to hurt my mother on top of hurting myself, especially since I couldn't even tell her why I was hurting myself. But I, I did. I stopped hurting myself, and I ended up writing. I ended up starting to play some music, and she nurtured that. She bought me my first instrument when I was 13, and I spilled all of my emotions into song. So I'm not saying that you have to go and ask all of your friends if they're suicidal, but checking in and, and genuinely asking if, and, if they're okay and what they're up to and how things are going, it's a good plan. And if you think that they might be really struggling, it's okay to ask them if, if they've ever wanted to die. I mean, I've... I've been asked that by some of my closest friends, and in those moments, I really needed to hear that question. I needed to ask myself that, actually. And so, if you feel like you need to be or want to be direct with a friend, I would say, don't be too afraid. It might be awkward, but you're probably going to get a lot more open dialogue to come out of that conversation than you would if you just beat around the bush. And number four. The myth that suicidal thoughts are rare. I know that we don't talk about it. I know that we're not going to go around telling everyone everything that's in our heads. But 
they're not that rare. They're, they can come as passive thoughts. They can be active thoughts. They can be a plan. Those are just, just three of the levels. Um, if you actually are thinking about going to a psychologist and are nervous telling them about your suicidal thoughts or even mentioning that you have them, I want you to know that psychologists, therapists, and people in the, the medical world, they, they do have a scale. It's a suicide severity scale that they use to evaluate and to consider what types of steps they need to take in order to support you and offer you further help. I would say that knowing that there is this scale is a little bit relieving for me. When I go to see my therapist, I'm not shaking in my boots, thinking, what, is she going to commit me if I tell her that I dreamt about, you know, slicing my wrists again or whatever? I can't help what my subconscious creates, and I definitely can't help all the passive thoughts that are happening to me when I'm driving to work or walking through the park, especially as someone who does deal with mental health issues. I would say know that there is this scale and feel more comfortable being open with your healthcare providers. Um, but also if you're someone who suspects that one of your friends is dealing with suicidal thoughts or whatever, if they open up to you and come to you, I would say don't evaluate them yourself based on this scale. Don't don't try to figure out if they're at risk or a risk to themselves. I would say that you're more likely to put your own bias and spin and your own emotions about suicide and project them onto them, and it will be less helpful than you think. I would just take them seriously and consider helping them seek out a local clinic or a support group in the area. You can even offer them hotlines to call or text because they exist. And if you don't feel like you, you have the right resources, consider donating money to a group that's already supporting uh, people with their mental health. Or if you want to learn how to support people better, you can consider volunteering somewhere to learn good communication skills and how to support other human beings. Well, there they are, just some of our least favorite myths about suicide. There are a lot more, but I'd rather not go into all of them. I have a lot of opinions, and sometimes I get too riled up to talk about them. Next up, we have our interview with Marissa Light about self-care, depression support groups, and poetry. But before we get into the interview... I want to share the rest of that song that we wrote together. So sit back and enjoy. Here is the rest of I'm So Glad You're Alive. I won't let you go till you know, till you know. And I won't let you go till you know. And I'm so glad that you're alive I'm so glad that you're alive 
glad that you're I wanted to write a poem, but it was not having that. 
This song actually came to me in the middle of the night. I really didn't want to write it. I was so tired and I just wanted to go to sleep, but I was just awakened by this song. And uh, I didn't, I'm not even usually a songwriter. I'm usually a poet, but this just came to me. It just wanted to be a song. And um, when I was writing this, all I could think about was my depression group that I had joined recently and how much that it has really changed my life. When I decided to join a depression support group, I was very, very nervous, and I didn't really know what to expect, but everyone was so welcoming and kind and helpful as much as they could be, and I was so amazed by the help that I got for other people that were going through the same things as I was. Many of them were having trouble getting the motivation to live day by day, and I just wanted to find some way to express to them about how much they have made my life better and how they're making each other's lives better and how beautiful their lives are in the people around, to the people around them. I think that's the wonderful thing about support groups, whether they're uh, depression support groups or trans support groups or, you know, there's just, there's a lot of different styles out there. I think the greatest part is that you get a chance to listen to other people's perspectives and see that you're not alone. And a lot of the times, even if your lives are very different, you notice that you can learn from other people's coping mechanisms or other people's reactions to experiences you may not have had yourself. And talking to people about mental illness is really important. And I noticed that a lot of the times we shy away from those topics and we don't get the kinds of support that we need. And it would be nice if, you know, we could talk about those things more with our friends, but as long as those support groups and those safe spaces exist, I think we're on, you know, a good roll when it comes to that. Tell me, are there any, any coping mechanisms or skills or techniques that you've learned from being in this depression support group and learning from the people around you? Um, I'm curious to see if there's anything you can share with me and the listeners, little things that help you day to day. I think the biggest coping skill that I have been using recently is uh, my biggest fear in my depression is that everything is terrible and it's going to stay terrible and I'm not going to be able to move forward. And you can um, remind yourself and say things are going to change. Um, but that can sometimes not get through as much. Uh, one of the things I do is I make small changes in my life, very small changes, um, to show that I can and will make progress in other areas of my life. Like I'll get my nails done or I'll learn a new skill or I'll try a new restaurant. I'll show that I can I will change, and also I try to prepare myself for said changes. For example, if I really want to move from where, like, my apartment is, um, I'll make sure that I have a lamp for when I move. Like, you know, those kind of things. So I'm prepared for when my life is awesome. I'll have the appropriate things and all that stuff. So that's one of the ways that... I cope with those kinds of things. Also, I, reaching out, I can't really stress enough how much having a support system and having just 
someone to echo off of and listen to and know that you're not alone in whatever situation you're in. And you mentioned that that the song, you know, that you wanted to sit down and write a poem, but instead a song came out. Tell me what's what's different between the process of writing poems for you and the process of writing this song or if you've written other songs what's the difference to you and how does it feel um you know we were in that creative writing class together as well as doing a lot of uh a lot of lgbt work part of you know the uh, gsa together and all that jazz but i never got a chance to talk to you about your writing process and i'm curious to see to hear um what what that is like for you now outside of the creative writing class and also working in different genres and different styles to me honestly writing is just kind of and this is going to be this is going to sound strange it's kind of like catching a fish that's already in my brain um i feel that the topics and the emotions and the words and the theme is already all in there I just have to bring it out of myself in a very certain way and that's um really complicated to explain I've always said that poetry is not something so much that you do it's something that you let happen like you can you try to lure it out um you try to do various things but often but it's pretty much its own job just to kind of exist inside of you, and then you have to figure out how to get it out. And that's really the more difficult part, but it's something that I've been able to do. It's a a certain type of skill that I have. I do not use music in my poetry very much. That is not one of my skills, so I'm just not used to getting out my feelings in that way, it that doesn't feel natural to me. But in this case, I didn't feel that it was completed without it, and that it was appropriate to not have music and not be in song format. So I decided to have, put it into a song this way, and it also felt like it needed to be that way to reach more people. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, there's a whole philosophical movement surrounding the idea that a lot of um, the knowledge that we learn over time is inherently in us and that we're just unlocking it as we progress and as we grow older. And I mean, that is a very good way to look at poetry and to look at creative um, arts and stuff like that. It definitely is within us and it takes different shapes and different forms and sometimes we'll be super surprised it'll be a medium that we've never tried before and it'll just come out of us and other times it'll be something that we've worked with like poetry for both of us something that we've worked with for years and years and we finally figure out that it's not something that we force it's something that just comes out of us so it definitely makes sense and that's a really good analogy i think that can be applied to a lot of different avenues My last question is a little bit of a silly one, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's one of my favorites. If you were were any color in a crayon box, what color would you be? It can be an existing color. It can be a color you've made up. 
you can go wild with this one, but I, I, I want to know what color are you, Marissa? Oh, so for that question, I want to tell you a story about how when I was little, our teacher in like kindergarten or something asked each person in the class what color was their favorite, and then she put their names up with that color on the board. And I saw that no one had picked the color yellow, and it was didn't have any other little kid's name next to it. And I was afraid that it wasn't going to have any little kid's name next to it, and it would get lonely. So I picked the color yellow. And so yellow has been my favorite color ever since, and that's just... I think that kind of answers your silly little question there. That is just, that's just wonderful and adorable. I can see a tiny you doing that, and that just shows that you still have that part of you, that personality trait within you. And it's beautiful to see someone filling in those gaps and sticking up and rooting for the underdog, whatever situation that may be. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective and telling our audience a little bit more about who is behind the song that we wrote together. I had such a great time collaborating with you. I hope that we can do it more often if it feels good and it feels right. And yeah, it was really great to catch up and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Well, softies, that's the end of this week's episode of A Soft Mess. I had a good time talking to you about mental illness, and I hope that this podcast has made you feel a little bit more comfortable starting the conversation in your own friend groups and with your families. Be good, do good, and stay soft. And remember, Honey Bear is always here for you.